The most memorable character in The Merchant of Venice is not the merchant of its title, Antonio. It's Shylock, the Jewish moneylender. The treatment of Shylock brings up tensions and anxieties that haunt the play well after he leaves the stage. In this episode, we speak with Stephen Greenblatt, John Cogan University Professor of the Humanities at Harvard University, about this fascinating character, about religious hatred in the play, and about the problems that shadow every character, even those who seem to get all that they want. The interpretations with which I'm the least sympathetic are the ones that try to wrap the play up in a single, unequivocal, clear package. This is an anti-Semitic play. This is a philo-Semitic play. This is a play that attacks religious stereotypes. This is a play that embodies religious stereotypes. This is a pure comedy of fun. This is a terrible comedy that's actually a tragedy, and so forth. Anything that tries to tie it all up in a single knot seems not to be in touch with something else that's important in the play. I'm more sympathetic to those interpretations that try to acknowledge the profound ambiguities of this play, the uncertainties of our own responses. Many of the play's ambiguities are generated by the character of Shylock. For Stephen Greenblatt, one of the most notable things about Shylock is how much the play didn't need him, or at least didn't need him to be what he became. Many romantic comedies feature a blocking figure, a character who gets the action going by opposing the marriage of the young lovers, as Shylock opposes Jessica's union with Lorenzo. This was Shylock's initial straightforward function in the play. But then something Greenblatt calls the Mercutio effect takes over. Mercutio is a particularly rowdy, wild, fabulous character in Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. He's not one of the main characters in the play. He dies halfway through. And Shakespeare is supposed to have said about Mercutio that he had to kill Mercutio before Mercutio killed the play. And I think that this remark reveals something quite significant about Shakespeare, which is that his imagination went out toward things that threatened the structures of the plays he was writing. His imagination didn't stop within the appropriate frame. And I think in the case of The Merchant of Venice, the Mercutio effect would look like this. Shakespeare began with a story about a comic bully, a father who's a villainous character in a general unpleasant and harsh and mean and potentially murderous vein and has to be stopped. And he is stopped by the end of the fourth act. But something happened to Shakespeare when he wrote the play, which is that the character of Shylock got bigger and bigger and began to threaten the structure that Shakespeare had embraced. So that would be one way of thinking about how Shakespeare takes a set of cultural and aesthetic materials and how, whether he wished to do so or not, his imagination blew them up. The way that Shylock seized Shakespeare's imagination is remarkable for several reasons. As we noted in episode one, Shakespeare wouldn't have seen Jewish communities in England. But he would have seen a Jewish character on stage in a play. Shakespeare's contemporary, Christopher Marlowe, wrote a very successful play called The Jew of Malta, featuring a villainous Jewish man named Barabbas. Marlowe's play certainly influences Shakespeare's, but it's notable how much the character of Shylock differs from the cartoonishly evil Barabbas. The Jew of Malta, 
by Christopher Marlowe is an astonishingly disturbing and brilliant play. It was probably written only a few years before Shakespeare wrote his play and must clearly have been one of the things behind Shakespeare's writing The Merchant of Venice at all. Marlowe's play is about an incredibly wicked Jewish villain, an enormously wealthy man named Barabbas. And the Christians want to seize this man's property. And the Jew Barabbas wants revenge. He does everything in his power to destroy the Christians. He talks about poisoning wells, about going out at night and killing innocent Christians. He's a kind of comic book villain. And Shakespeare is very clearly aware of Marlowe's play. He's trying to do something with comparable materials in The Merchant of Venice, but without making Shylock into that kind of stage villain. Shylock does, of course, pursue revenge on the Christian Antonio. But his motives and feelings go far beyond Barabbas's gleeful delight in his villainy. They render Shylock inescapably human. You get a character who is clearly marked as a villain, and specifically a religious enemy villain. And at the same time, you get involved in a more and more complicated relationship with him. For one thing, you see that he has a life history of having to deal with a community that spits on him, mistreats him, curses him, hates him. So there's that part of the play. But then you also find yourself inside Shylock's house. You see Shylock's relationship with his daughter. It's not a perfect relationship by any means, but clearly he loves his daughter and wants to protect her. He overprotects her. And then after she's left him, you feel the devastation and loneliness of this father, the torment that he feels internally. And you also get a glimpse of his past relationship with his wife, Leah, and his love for her. All of that is much, much more than you need if you're just constructing a comic villain. You get increasingly involved in Shylock's whole way of feeling. That doesn't mean you forgive it, but you get to understand it. You get to feel it yourself. Modern audiences can be especially struck by the pain of the religious persecution Shylock suffers from the whole Christian community, and especially from Antonio. He hates our sacred nation, Shylock says. He hath disgraced me and hindered me, and what's his reason? I am a Jew. In Antonio's language, the Jewish Shylock is little better than an animal. He calls Shylock a dog and says that debating with the Jew for mercy is like trying to debate a wolf. And Shylock, it must be noted, returns the feeling in kind. I hate him for he is a Christian, he says. One aspect of this play that greatly interests me is the question about religious hatred, about how far people are willing to go with it. How intense is the hatred that Jews and Christians feel for the other group? And what are they willing to do about it? There's a character, Graziano, who keeps saying that they should kill Shylock, hang him. And a certain internal logic of the play would suggest that he should indeed be killed as the irreconcilable enemy of the Christians. And the play does go very far in that direction. The Duke threatens to have Shylock executed unless he agrees to convert to Christianity and to dispose of his wealth in the way that he's ordered to do. But actually, the play doesn't go all the way. Shylock does agree, and the Christians agree to receive Shylock as one of them. We could say that's painful. It's painful to me personally. I think the play can't quite figure out what to do with it all. Shylock goes off to be converted to Christianity and disappears in the fifth act, but it's not destroying him. In fact, 
It's making him one of us from the Christian point of view. And the reverse is also true. Shylock plots for most of the play to kill his enemy, Antonio. He hates Antonio intensely. And then Antonio is bound to a chair. Shylock has a knife poised above his breast. And he could, at that moment, kill him. That's what he wants. He could be the person who takes revenge, finally, Jewish revenge, against the Christians who insult and, and despise the Jews. All he has to do is to kill him. Of course, he'll be executed himself. That's the logic of suicide bombing. But Shylock doesn't do it. He holds back. So part of the very strange structure of the play is to bring both Jew and Christian to the brink of destroying the other and then having them step back from that brink. Stepping back is notoriously uncomfortable and unsatisfying. That's a problem that Shakespeare faced as an artist. He had to figure out what to do with not going all the way. But it's also interesting, morally, culturally, civilizationally interesting. We have to engage with it. Audiences today must engage with the intense discomfort the play provokes in the post-Holocaust 21st century. In its frank depiction of prejudice and hatred, The Merchant of Venice raises questions around religious difference, similar to questions raised by Othello around race. Is this a play that simply represents anti-Jewish feeling, or is it an anti-Jewish play? There's no question, in my mind at least, that the play is saturated with anti-Jewish feeling and stereotypes. Shakespeare has Shylock from the beginning centrally associated with money and money lending. 3,000 ducats. Mm. And that's absolutely characteristic of the anti-Jewish stereotype in the period. And then, of course, he's relentless in his cruelty. As the play builds towards its dramatic climax, Shylock is sharpening that knife. The play is saturated with unbelievably ugly stuff. But what's strange, deeply strange, is that this is not the whole story. The whole story is bigger and more complicated than that. That is why the play is still around after 400 years. If it was simply a play of virulent anti-Semitism, it would have vanished by now. It is a play written in an unapologetic way for people who are unapologetic about their anti-Judaism but it complicates the feelings in a way that remains completely fascinating. You get to enter into Shylock's structure of feeling, and conversely, you get to enter into the feeling structure of the persecuting Christians, particularly of Antonio and Portia as well. You get to see much, much more of them than you would need to see if you were just going to get the plot to play itself out. And that is what is remarkable about Shakespeare's achievement. It's also remarkable how Shakespeare builds his play so that some of the painful feelings Shylock suffers as the play's most despised outsider are shared by some of its most powerful insiders. At the end of the trial scene, Shylock's forced conversion to Christianity leaves him isolated, without a true community. But at the play's end, when the lovers go off in pairs, there's another major character who finds himself excluded. Antonio. I think that Antonio and Shylock are in some strange way secret sharers, in the sense that they're both in some profound way alone, isolated, without the satisfactions that other people look for in this world. They're both represented as old men, 
whose time in some sense is over. There's a new generation, a new set of connections in the world, and they're left behind. In that sense, there is a secret hidden relationship between them. I think that each sees the other as the implacable enemy. But you could say that the enmity is intensified by the sense that in a strange way, they're more like each other than they would ever be able to recognize or understand or acknowledge. At the play's end, Shylock has lost the two people dearest to him, his wife, Leah, whose ring he so treasured, and his daughter, Jessica. Antonio has also lost the person he loved most, Bassanio. Antonio has a deep affection for Bassanio. It is a profound friendship, but a friendship that's been tied up with money for some time. Antonio offers Bassanio, quote, his purse and his person. There's a strange internal rhyme here, as if person and purse were somehow bound up with one another, as they are. When Bassanio thinks of Antonio's person, we can be reasonably sure that he thinks of Antonio's purse. But Antonio wants to give Bassanio everything, anything that he asks for. It's something beyond the ordinary measure of generosity. This is a special relationship. Sometimes in performance, Antonio and Bassanio's deep affection is played as a homoerotic or physical relationship, with the men exchanging close embraces or kisses. But in the text of the play, Antonio expresses his devotion to Bassanio particularly by lending him money. The play's language is constantly intertwining love and money. Bassanio says, To you, Antonio, I owe the most in money and in love. When Jessica elopes with her lover, she steals a large quantity of her father's money, and we hear that Shylock runs through the streets crying, Oh, my ducats! Oh, my daughter! As though he laments both equally. Solano and Salarino mock Shylock for this incident, but all the characters speak in terms that link love with economic value, because this world makes it difficult to extricate personal relationships from financial ties. As the play develops, we see that all of these relationships the relationship between Bassanio and Antonio, the relationship between Bassanio and Portia, are centrally about large sums of money, as is the relationship between Antonio and Shylock. At the beginning of the play, the only relationship that's freed from this particular nexus is between Shylock and Jessica. But then we see that Jessica runs off with a Christian who is very interested in the Jew's money. So every relationship in the play is saturated with money and with the obligations that go with money. Portia's language, too, reflects this entanglement of love and money. Just after she and Bassanio are betrothed, she learns about his debt to Antonio. She gives him the money to repay the debt and says, Since you are dear-bought, I will love you dear. The repetition of the word dear suggests that she will cherish Bassanio in proportion to the expense he has cost her, as though love could be quantified in the same mathematical terms as money. Antonio makes the same suggestion when he urges Bassanio to break his promise to Portia and give the ring to the lawyer. Let his deservings and my love withal be valued against your wife's commandment. 
His words imply that one love can be measured against another and outweigh it. This is likely Portia's fear that Bassanio's love for Antonio outweighs his love for her. In the courtroom, Bassanio tells Antonio, Life itself, my wife and all the world are not with me esteemed above thy life. I would lose all, I sacrifice them all to deliver you. And Portia overhears. Part of the particular emotional poignancy of the play is that Portia, when she finally gets what she wants, when she finally gets Bassanio, Portia thinks that she's formed a bond with a man who loves her. But then she discovers that Bassanio has, as it were, an emotional pre-contract, an emotional bond to a man back in Venice. And then she has to set in motion a very complicated set of actions in order to free herself from this pre-contract by freeing Bassanio from it. If Antonio dies because he has borrowed uh, he has borrowed the money from Shylock for Bassanio to use, then Bassanio's emotional bond to Antonio will last forever. So Portia is in a very difficult position. Imagine it for yourself. You marry someone, you're madly in love with him, and then you discover almost immediately a whole history you had no idea of, an emotional, perhaps a physical history, that's completely new to you, and it changes everything in your relationship. Portia is someone who, as much as the other characters in the play, is in a kind of emotional trouble. And that emotional trouble is what all of the characters, each of them in a different way, all of the characters are trying to solve for themselves. Portia tries to solve her emotional trouble by breaking the bond, a bond that is financial and emotional between Antonio and Bassanio. When Antonio put his money and his life at risk for Bassanio, then Bassanio owed his greatest debt to him. But with her intervention in the trial, Portia saves Antonio's life and secures him Shylock's fortune, which puts both Antonio and Bassanio in debt to her. And to ensure that Bassanio owes her even more, Portia also arranges the trick with the rings. When she gets Bassanio to give her the ring he promised never to give away, she places him in a moral and emotional debt to her that he must repay with lifelong faithfulness, as he promises, By my soul I swear I never more will break an oath with thee. So Portia gets, in a sense, what she wants. Many of the characters seem to. Bassanio has his wife and his fortune. Lorenzo and Jessica have Shylock's wealth. Antonio has his life and the good news that his ships have unexpectedly returned bearing riches. Plot-wise, we have the ingredients for a comedy. And yet, the final act never quite feels like a comic happy ending. It's exquisitely uncomfortable for virtually everyone. Sometimes it's played that Jessica and Lorenzo were having a very unpleasant conversation. Whether Graziano and Nerissa are already revealing theirs to be a disastrous marriage. Sometimes it's played that Portia is alienated already from her husband. You can play it in a mournful way, with Jessica secretly melancholy because she misses her father. Or you can feel this burden is over all of the characters because of what has been done to Shylock. It's even played sometimes as a kind of farcical comedy. But nothing quite works 
with those rings. And that's because the meaning of those rings is bound up with the connection between matter and emotion in a way that symbolically focuses something that has been troubling from the very beginning. What is the relationship between ducats and love? Money is not simple. It's a complicated symbolic object. And those rings aren't simple bands of metal. They're emotional gauges. Portia puts Bassanio through a kind of trial, which he inevitably has to fail, in order basically to break Bassanio's bond to Antonio. If her strategy works, that leaves Antonio, how shall we say, as a pleasant memory and an honored guest, but he cannot get too close to the emotional center of the house any longer. Some of the most successful versions I've seen of the play had Antonio at the end of the fifth act left alone on stage in the way that Shylock was left at the end of Act Four, in a state of abandonment or emotional devastation. That is a peculiar way to end a comedy, but that's the cost of Shakespeare doing the very strange thing that he did. Shakespeare actually ends the play with a lowbrow comic joke, almost as if to drive home how very uncomic the rest of the play has turned out to be. The characters left on stage have looked for the traditional rewards of comedy, and they have mainly got them. But Shakespeare seems to remind us that even if we get what we think we want, perfect happiness is not guaranteed. What do we want from a comedy? We want to laugh. We want to go out feeling happy, feeling that the problems have been resolved and happy young lovers are going off to bed. We want... A glimpse, a glimpse of sexual satisfaction. Shakespeare and his culture understood this very well. All the comedies drive toward the idea of going to bed with the person that you've been longing for. And sure enough, Shakespeare ends the play with a speech by Graziano saying, while I live, I'll fear no other thing so sore as keeping safe Nerissa's ring. That is a dirty joke. Shakespeare decides to end The Merchant of Venice with a dirty joke. Now, you could say, well, he's just fulfilling his contract. We applaud and we laugh and we go out. But I think no one over the last 400 years who has seen The Merchant of Venice feels that this is what the play finally is all about, making sure that Graziano and Rissa and Portia and Bassanio have a good night in bed together. It's totally inadequate to what we've just seen. And Shakespeare absolutely knew that. So what he's giving you in this comedy is something more complicated, more bittersweet, Something that says, look, you can have that. I'll give you that as comedy gives it to you. But actually, life is more complicated. Married life, sexual life, our emotional life, our connections to our parents. These are all, even in the happiest of circumstances, more complicated than that. And you don't have to dwell on the complication if you don't want to. You don't have to be miserable about it. But you can season your laughter with a deeper form of understanding. And the play offers you that. Understanding doesn't mean shrugging it off or forgiving and forgetting. It just means getting that our lives are braided together with sweet and sour, with sadness and with happiness. And that even what look like the happiest relations that we can celebrate in the comedies have their shadows. Let's put it that way. There are many, many shadows, hidden histories that we've become aware of by the end of The Merchant of Venice. In the next episode, we'll explore how Shakespeare starts to reveal those hidden histories, in particularly impassioned speeches from Shylock and Antonio, 
and how he brings the play to its wrenching climax in the trial scene. 